BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm David Pitu, the narrator of Elon Green's new audiobook, Last Call. Recently, I shared a trailer for Last Call, and today I have something even more special to share with you. What you're about to hear is an extended excerpt from the audiobook. Keep listening to get a glimpse of the Last Call killer and the victims he preyed on. After Luker and Doyle returned to the maintenance yard, they began unloading the bags and tossing them into a maroon dumpster. That's when Luker noticed that the white bag, the one that seemed inordinately heavy, had a pinkish hue. It felt wrong. It didn't feel, he would testify, like normal trash. Curiosity got the best of him, and he opened the bag. Pee-wee, he said. I found a man's head. Luker called the state police. Hours later, at another rest area, this one on the Garden State Parkway, a road stretching the length of New Jersey. Two other maintenance men were doing similar work. The younger man emptied a trash barrel as his boss sat in the truck. They had last been there a couple of days earlier and now found a number of black bags. The barrel was simply too heavy to lift. Well, said the older man, consolidate and put the bags in the other bags. As he began pulling the first bag out of the 55-gallon barrel, it ripped. There was a leg, and it appeared to be human. Oh, shit, the man said to his boss. It fell to Matthew Kuhn, a detective in New Jersey State Police's major crime unit, to lead the homicide investigation. Kuhn, eight years into his career, was off-duty that Friday when the sergeant paged him, demanding his presence at the barracks. Proceed to the Red Lion. Red Lion was part of Troop C, which served a number of jurisdictions across the state, including Ocean County in the south. Kuhn had a reputation as by-the-book and not a man to chase false leads. He had a sculpted jaw, a rabbity nose, and found happiness amid the quiet, feeding the ducks and gulls of Newton Lake with his two daughters. He was not a gabber. A colleague said, he didn't say shit just to hear his own voice. Kuhn's detectives inspected the contents of the garbage bags. The first contained a head, its mop of gray hair falling in all directions, completely severed at the level of the fourth cervical vertebra through the vocal cords. Detectives could see the spinal cord. The vocal cords had been cut, and the detectives saw the spinal canal, the vertebrae through which the spinal cord passes as well. The second bag, white with a red drawstring, held a set of arms dismembered at the shoulder joints and a four-by-four-inch piece of skin. In the third bag, eviscerated intestines, 
but also a blood-stained striped shower curtain, blood-stained surgical gloves, a king-size fitted bedsheet from Liz Claiborne, and four straight black hairs. The fourth bag, brown with a yellow drawstring, held the upper torso, the chest, the upper trunk, and a part of the abdomen, which had been severed just above the navel. The next bag, the fifth, contained the lower abdomen and pelvis. The final and sixth bag, the legs, cut at the femur. In addition to body parts, detectives found a brown plastic bag on which was written, Thank you for shopping here, the previous Sunday's New Jersey section of the New York Times, and New York tabloids The Post and Daily News, placed against the wounds to act as a blotter. Wondered an investigator, Who reads both of those papers? It was all a bit too familiar to Kuhn. Three years earlier, a woman's head was found on the seventh hole of a New Jersey golf course. Her legs turned up in a river 50 miles to the north. She was the first victim of Joel Rifkin, a prolific serial killer from Long Island. The autopsy for the new victim was performed in Newark, in a slightly cold room, not unlike an industrial kitchen, large and bare bones, full of steel cabinets and rows of forceps, scalpels, scissors, stainless steel rulers, and a colander for washing organs. The medical examiner had been given a plastic body bag inside of which were six smaller bags. The contents, once removed from the bag, formed a person. Beginning at the head, the medical examiner saw a patch of missing skin on the nape of the neck. The removed skin, which she found in another bag, had on it what appeared to be a bite mark. Farther down, inspecting the torso, carefully arrayed like the rest of the body on a gleaming metal table, she observed a series of wounds, one below the left nipple, four inches deep, perforated the heart. A second penetrated the abdominal cavity. There was a third on the left side of the abdomen. All were stab wounds. Based on the bruising and the surrounding soft tissues, all were incurred perimortem, which meant the victim had been alive after the stabbing began. She noticed that the head of the humerus, which runs from shoulder to elbow, was intact. The arms had been carefully disarticulated rather than dismembered. Removing an arm in this fashion, she knew, required dexterity. Cutting through numerous ligaments and a fibrous thick capsule that holds in place the upper arm with the shoulder is considerably more difficult than simply cutting through bone. Whoever did this was strong and determined and had a sense for anatomy. There were ligature marks caused by a rope or a string around the wrist and evidence of fresh hemorrhage under the skin. This suggested the man had been bound. This, too, occurred while he was still alive. The medical examiner concluded the man's death was caused in aggregate by stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, which penetrated the heart, lung, mesentery, and stomach. The wound to the heart caused immediate arrhythmia and bleeding into the pericardial sac, which contains the heart, and resulted in immediate death. Weeks later, the results of a toxicology screen, a test for the presence of alcohol and drugs, 
recorded the deceased's alcohol level at 0.230%, well above the legal limit of 0.10. The name of the man found at the maintenance yard was never in doubt. When detectives opened two white trash bags, they found not only a compass saw, but also a briefcase and wallet belonging to Thomas Richard Mulcahy, 57, of Sudbury, Massachusetts. Even ahead of the autopsy, detectives could make several critical assumptions about Tom Mulcahy's manner of death and disposal. Kuhn noticed ligature marks around his wrists, ankles, and knees. The medical examiner, for her part, saw ligature marks on the thighs. The man, he'd later speculate, had been restrained in a hog-type fashion. Noting the trauma of disarticulation, detectives were drawn to another preliminary, mildly sexist conclusion. The perpetrator was probably a man, because disarticulation took a fair amount of strength, and he probably had medical experience, because the process required a certain finesse. This view was augmented by the fact that the body parts had been double-bagged and the bags double-knotted. The disarticulation suggested a further hint, however vague, about the crime scene. Separating bones from joints takes several hours, and such an operation demanded seclusion. This was confirmed when a pair of detectives drove to a maximum security prison in Comstock, New York, and interviewed a man who shot another man for calling his mother a Russian whore. He dragged the corpse into the bathroom and proceeded to dismember it. He told the detectives that, all told, the procedure took about six hours, and he had to stop a few times to rest and eat pizza. Clearly, the perpetrator, or perpetrators, had been methodical. The parts had been severed, washed, and double-tied. Neat and orderly, thought the detectives. There was indeed a perverse care taken with the body, which had been drained to such a degree, said one years later, you couldn't get a Dixie cup of blood out of the remains. A senior detective was struck by the precision. He'd never seen anything like it. The cuts were so clean. There were no jagged marks. Wherever this man had been killed, it wasn't at the rest stop. It was the secondary crime scene, put more crudely, a dump site. The lack of a primary crime scene was, for investigators, an impediment. Such locations often provide touch DNA, hairs, and bodily fluids such as semen and saliva, all of which could be traced back to a suspect. In fact, Kuhn believed that the lack of such evidence gave the murderer a degree of confidence. The perpetrator was so confident, in fact, that he hadn't bothered to dispose of Tom's identification. As Kuhn told an interviewer years later, we felt that whoever had done this felt that his connection to Thomas Mulcahy would never come back to him. The perpetrator's fastidiousness prompted another assumption, and it was chilling. Whoever had done this had most likely done it before. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Margaret Mulcahy was nervous. It was Thursday, July 9th, and her husband of three decades was supposed to be home in time for supper. They last talked to each other two days ago. Despite her nerves, she waited. But by 11 o'clock, concerned and impatient, Margaret called the Barbizon, a neo-Gothic hotel on East 63rd Street where Tom stayed when he was in Manhattan. It was conveniently located, a 15-minute walk to Radio City Music Hall and the Rainbow Room, which he loved. She asked the staff to check Tom's room, which they did, and found only his clothes. He had checked in, they said, but not out. Then she called a colleague, who was surprised Tom hadn't returned to Sudbury. Finally, Margaret called the New York City Police Department and was told to file a missing persons report in her hometown. The next day, an increasingly concerned Margaret drove to the Sudbury police station. She explained that her husband had been on a business trip and should have been home already. Rather than take the report immediately, however, Margaret was told to sit tight. I couldn't understand, she would testify, why I had to wait. Minutes earlier, the Sudbury police had gotten a call from New Jersey. Tom was not, in fact, missing. And that is how Margaret learned that her husband, two weeks short of his 58th birthday, had been murdered and left on the side of a highway. In the hours after the Mulcahy family learned of Tom's death, his 18-year-old daughter Tracy did something that previously seemed beyond comprehension. She prayed her father had been shot. Somehow that seemed to be the quickest method with the least pain, she would say. It seemed more human as if murder could be human. It wasn't for a couple of days when Tom was officially identified that detectives told Margaret that he had been mutilated. Tracy learned the details from the local paper. As Margaret grieved and the family began planning a funeral, detectives combed Tom's life for clues to what had happened. They obtained his business records and expense accounts, they visited every place he had gone on five years of prior trips to New York. Wherever Tom had been, detectives flashed his photo. Much of the initial focus was on his work, perhaps because it consumed so much of his life. He had been an employee of Bull HN Information Systems, a computer company in Billerica, Massachusetts, since 1960. Hired by an earlier iteration of the firm, Minneapolis Honeywell, Tom rose through the ranks. A college newsletter noted his promotion to head of the firm's international division in 1968. For the last 15 years, he focused on international sales, which demanded a great deal of travel to far-flung locales, including the firm's global headquarters in Paris. He had a view of life that everything was great, everything was wonderful. The classic, forward-thinking American said a European colleague who learned of Tom's death from the detectives who knocked on his door. He would always say nice things about people. Coming from Europe, 
where all you do is criticize others. He was the exact opposite. Detectives learned that Tom and Margaret had been married for three decades and had four children, that Tom was, by any reasonable measure, a professional success. He was a good father and got along with his neighbors and co-workers. To his kids, he wasn't physically affectionate, but he was warm and loving. Of the two parents, he was less inclined to act as the disciplinarian. He was a typical neighbor, said the man who lived catty-corner from the Mulcahy house. That spring, he told a reporter, we complimented him on the fact that he planted a lot of annuals in the garden. Detectives learned something else about the Irish Catholic. Tom liked men, and when he took business trips, he tacked on an extra day to give himself time to visit the gay bars and clubs. As it happened, this was not a surprise to Margaret. She discovered his predilection a year earlier, when, preparing his clothes for the cleaners, she found in his pocket a pamphlet advertising a gay bar. This became a topic of discussion when they went for marital counseling. Tracy wondered years later if her perspective of Tom was skewed by the circumstances of his death. She believed he was a happy person, an unusual person, too. He was far more cosmopolitan than any of her friends' fathers. He traveled internationally and loved it. She understood that, to some degree, business trips were his other life, where he drank and partied. He got to live the part of his life that he wasn't able to live publicly. When Tracy was in grade school, Tom and Margaret drank a few glasses of wine each night. They reached a point, however, where Margaret drew a line in the sand, telling Tom he was an alcoholic. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous while she attended meetings at Al-Anon, which offers support for families and friends of alcoholics. As Tracy got older, she could tell when her father, who favored whiskey but didn't know when to stop, came home drunk. For Margaret, exercising control over her household became increasingly difficult. Leading up to 1992, Tom's drinking had been an issue, and now she knew about the men, too. The children, for their part, could see that something was troubling their parents. They felt Margaret was making Tom feel guilty, but about what they weren't sure. The children, not aware of the bigger picture, were disproportionately critical of their mother. To Tracy, it seemed like she made him feel like shit, but you didn't know what was the reasoning behind it. After Tom was found, Margaret asked that New Jersey detectives meet her in person. She flew from Logan to Philadelphia International Airport, where the state police met her at the gate. As Margaret sat in the barracks near the airport, she recounted problems in the marriage. Tom would go on business trips and frequent gay establishments, she said. She gave them names of friends and associates. Just anything, recalled Kuhn, that she could do to help us in our investigation. Tom's mother, Mary, emigrated from Ireland to Boston in 1920 when she was 23. On July 24, 1934, then well into her 30s, her only child, Thomas Richard Mulcahy, was born in Brighton, a working-class neighborhood in northwest Boston. Her husband, also named Thomas, died of pneumonia before their son's third birthday. Mary didn't have much of an education and, like many of her fellow immigrants, found menial work 
cleaning the floors of the Boston Post Office. Her petition for naturalization, which she filed in 1937, listed her occupation as domestic. While raising Tom alone, they were perpetual guests as they bounced from house to house, family to family, living in Hyde Park, Mattapan, West Roxbury, and Roslindale, all staunchly Irish neighborhoods that were, by virtue of geography and sheer will, cloistered. Despite a lack of money, Mary prioritized education. For an Irish kid, the best education one could hope for was Boston College High School, an all-male prep school at the end of a long five-cent bus ride from Roslindale to the South End. The school now sits on 40 acres, but in 1948, classes were held in an apartment house in a neighborhood beset by violence. Just that January, an old man named Patrick Canty was thrown to his death from a speeding car. In April, 17-year-old Arthur McGilvery stabbed Dorothy Brennan during an argument at McGilvery's apartment on Corning Street. He dumped her body into Fort Point Channel. It was an area of derelicts, said a classmate of Tom's. Poor souls begging for money. Alcoholics. In 1950, to escape the South End, the school moved to a Dorchester building on an undeveloped plot of land a priest described as a kind of moonscape. Several years earlier, tuition had been raised to $150, and most parents, Mary included, struggled to pay it. And yet it was considered a worthwhile investment because the students were all but guaranteed a rigorous education. Alumni became part of a brotherhood that survived the Latin, Greek, and British literature taught by priests in black robes looking for an excuse to expel them. In a novel about B.C. High, a teacher wrote of a Jesuit education where there was no room for the faint of heart or weak of spirit. Out of either habit or self-preservation, the work ethic extended beyond the classroom, as kids sat in the stands during football games doing homework. The result was an unusually accomplished class, bishops, college presidents, judges, even a commander-in-chief of the United States High Command. However, in a class of such extremity, the dark clouds were spectacular as well. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Members of the class of 1952 would eventually contribute to the most consequential scandal in the history of the Catholic Church. 
A yearbook entry next to a photo of a bright-eyed boy with a wide smile begins, Jim, one of our livelier classmates, is noted for his uninhibited witty sayings and good spirits. It continues, Minstrel show enthusiast, has played basketball with his own team in New York and Connecticut. B.C. next. Jim was James Porter who would be ordained as a priest in 1959 and hired by St. Mary's Parish in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, the next year. It was here that Porter, as the Globe put it, allegedly fondled, assaulted, and sodomized scores of boys and girls. A decade later, well past the point where it was helpful, he wrote a letter to Pope Paul VI. I had become homosexually involved with some of the youth of the parish, he confessed, and requested laicization. Upon Porter's 1993 sentencing to a term in prison, where classmates from B.C. High would visit him, Bernard Law, Boston's cardinal, called the disgraced priest an aberrant, which he was, but not sufficiently so. John Brendan McCormick also class of 52, was secretary for ministerial personnel under cardinal law. In that capacity, McCormick heard complaints against priests accused of sexual misconduct, one of whom was the notorious John Gagan. By many accounts, he did not treat such complaints with the required seriousness. In 1994, the Boston Archdiocese was, the Globe would write, being deluged with complaints that scores of its priests had sexually molested hundreds of children. McCormick responded by shielding from parishioners the identities of more than 100 accused priests. This eventually metastasized into a national scandal, but first it was a local shame. Many Boston-area Catholics were horrified by the church's inaction, so in a desperate last-ditch effort to pressure the church into cleaning house, individual parishes banded together to form a group called Voice of the People. The chairman of the Sudbury Parish group was a B.C. High classmate of Tom's who eventually left the church in disgust, but not before seeing Margaret Mulcahy at a meeting. Tom is not remembered in great detail by most of his classmates except to say they liked him. He made an impression on William Michael Bulger, who commuted to Boston College High School each day from a third-floor apartment in South Boston. The seeds of the politician he became are evident in his yearbook entry. Bulger, classmates wrote, always manages to come out with a quip which never fails to bring a laugh from the class and teachers alike. While sitting for their school photos, most of the boys seemed to look at a spot just over the photographer's shoulder. Bulger, however, cocked his head ever so slightly and looked directly at the camera. Bulger and his wife, Mary, rented a home near the Mulcahy's during the late 1960s in Mashpee on Cape Cod. He'd been a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives for nearly a decade, while his brother, James Whitey Bulger, was the Boston mob's towering figure. I think of Tom very favorably. He was a good person, said Bulger in October 2018, 
just over a week before his brother was fatally beaten in prison. You'll never hear anyone say otherwise. That was the consensus. Tom wasn't aloof or a loner. He was a sweet kid, but indifferent to sports and extracurriculars, which is primarily how friendships were formed. His yearbook entry was tongue-in-cheek. Every morning, enjoys baseball, football, and swimming. Lists Latin as favorite subject. It's unlikely that any of this was true. When the day's classes ended, Tom went straight home. None of his classmates suspected Tom was gay. They wouldn't have understood what that meant, they say, for there simply was no awareness of homosexuality on campus. Every now and then, somebody would seem to be, I don't know, sissified, says Bulger. You'd be conscious of that, but I don't think you made a further conclusion about it. The subject of homosexuality wasn't engaged with in the classroom either. To the extent priests broached it at all, they did so just to forestall discussion. Nor would the children have learned about queer life at home from either parents or local periodicals. To be gay or lesbian in Mattapan, West Roxbury, and Roslindale was a lonely experience. Bereft of bars and clubs, one had to travel seven or eight miles to Bay Village and Beacon Hill for the Napoleon Club, Playland, Punchbowl, and Jacques. Out of desperation, even the bathrooms of the city's subway system were a destination. Until the mid-1960s, the public toilets were a hot spot for Subway Sammies, who, upon entering a restroom, would place a nickel on a shelf by the door to signal their availability as a sex partner. Such measures were necessary. Not even private parties offered protection. In March 1945, police raided a house party in Back Bay. It was fairly raucous. People were just dancing and mingling and kissing and so forth, an attendee reported. A plainclothes policeman had infiltrated the party, and a couple dozen revelers were escorted to the Charles Street Jail. There was a trial during which the accused were found guilty on morals charges and outed. As a result, the city's gay men curtailed house parties. No place was truly safe. Instead of being a refuge, Boston's gay bars and clubs were raided by the police with regularity. There was no expectation of privacy. The Midtown Journal, a South End tabloid published by a straight man named Frederick Shibley, recorded the arrests, Butch Ball baffles bulls, went one headline, for transgressions as minimal as kissing. Shibley, it should be noted, was an equal opportunity antagonist, the Boston Catholic Church tried, unsuccessfully, to shut the paper down. Midtown Journal's habit of printing the names of arrested queer people was pernicious. In 1953, 19-year-old George Mansour went to a party in Bay Village. At the moment it was raided by the police, he was administering oral sex to a sailor. Mansour, who became an influential film programmer, had known he was gay since his early teens, when he began having sex with men, including his sister's husband. A fat child, he decided he'd rather eat dick than mashed potatoes and lost weight. An error-riddled account of the party ran in Shibley's scandal sheet. Mansur, 
a high school valedictorian, was accepted at Boston University. Upon realizing the incoming student had been convicted on a morals charge, the university revoked his acceptance. To hear more from Last Call by Elon Green, buy now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.